Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In today's episode, we chat with Michael Gambola about his book, After an Affair, Pursuing Restoration. For more help on this topic, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Michael Gambola is executive director at Blue Ridge Christian Counseling and has taught courses at CCEF, Westminster Theological Seminary, and Biblical Theological Seminary. Hey there, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Glad to be here. Thanks. Your book, After an Affair, Pursuing Restoration, is part of PNR Publishing's 31-day devotional series, which I am a huge fan of, and we've had several other authors in that series on the show already. Would you take a few moments to tell us why you wanted to write a book designed to help unfaithful spouses survive the wilderness of adultery? Sure. I was a counselor for a number of years, and I was just running into a lot of people who are hurting after infidelity. And uh, couples that were trying to rebuild things. And I just was feeling the weight of how much needed to change in order to bring a marriage back together after something that big. And I was I was struggling to apply the marriage counseling books I had and the resources I had. And I felt like there was just a lot of, there were a lot of transitions that people needed to go through to kind of leave the mindset behind that that made the adultery possible in the first place. And I just felt like there needed to be a venue where I could explain a few things. I could give some orienting ideas and to cast some of what of a vision on you know what needed to change. So I started writing without any idea of publication. I started writing a workbook for people in counseling. And my you know, again my hope was that it would give people a chance to learn what what needed to change. But also, I, I, it felt like it was a good access point. People after an, after an affair are often really eager to come back to God. And, and in some general sense, they want to repent. And so it's an access point to say, here's, here's a devotional. Uh, it's not a, a list of 50 to-dos, or it's something they're already interested in doing if they're coming to a Christian counseling center. And so I found it as a good entry point. And also, it, just, it gave more depth, I hope, to the, to the material to say it's not just about making your marriage or your family better, but to restore your relationship with God. There was a really tender truth that you shared in the introduction of the book I want to share with the guest. You wrote that coming clean and coming home to God helps us to come clean and come home to our families, too. Can you explain what you meant by this statement and why it matters so much when pursuing marital reconciliation after an affair? Right. I mean, we're, I mean, everyone's going to be tempted toward those things in general, toward hiding, defensiveness, blame shifting, you know, toward the things that aren't coming clean, right? The opposite of connecting with God and others. Uh, but especially after infidelity, I mean, it just it feels really, really exposing, really humiliating, and you want to you want to do damage control and, and not hurt other people and not have the other not have other people think you're a terrible person. There's a lot uh, of reason why defensiveness is really natural. But of course, the you know the basic message of the gospel is that you know, we see ourselves at our worst and admit to it without defense and you know admitting we need a savior. And, and I really think that you know that defensive trusting posture brings us close to God. And that posture also makes it easier for people to be close to us. Well, I haven't personally gone through this experience. I would imagine that the very early stages of adultery, either being confessed or exposed, are so terribly painful and disorienting for the couple that is going through it. Can you offer some insight into what those first initial days and weeks might look like based on your counseling experience? I mean, the first several weeks are 
obviously the, some of the hardest. There's so much shock and it just upends the whole world with a person who is betrayed. It's not unusual at all in those first six, eight plus weeks to have intrusive thoughts and images or flashbacks to the disclosure or to you know, the, ima the imagined affair that, you know, that mm -hmm. again, in the, in the betrayed spouse's mind, right? You know, lots of questions are, are coming up. There's an uncertainty on what it all means for going forward. And then the, the spouse has come clean. You often have a real big disconnect. Um, so, you know, the, the spouse who's betrayed, you know, that's day one of like the worst season of their whole life. Right. And for the person who's coming clean, it's it's day one of liberation. You know, you're you're finally in the light. And so it's often there's a big emotional disconnect because person confessing uh, actually feels a big weight off their shoulders because they've been carrying it for a long time, mm -hmm. you often. Mm -hmm. And then the person who's betrayed is, you know, that's that's the start of the massive weight on their shoulders. You know, both people are starting to kind of rewrite history and the marriage story that they had. And, you know, especially for the betrayed spouse, they're not sure not sure how to make sense of the person they knew in light of this new information and the relationship they had and the home they had. And you know, it's just, there's it, just a tremendous amount of uncertainty. You know, what, what do I want to know about what happened? Uh, what do I want to do about what happened? Those are really tough questions and there's not an easy and obvious answer early in the, in the process. If this is just coming to light, what have you seen in terms of defense mechanisms for both the adulterer and the spouse? Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse as to how that might come into play in the context right. of kind of working through this initial shockwave? Right. We put, I mean, everyone puts up defenses when you feel threatened, right? So when, when you feel like something is a danger, you're going to, all your natural defenses are going to come up and learn defenses too. And so if you're the person who's confessing, then you know, you're terrified. You're going to lose your whole family. You're going to lose maybe, you know, if you're in ministry, you're, you're going to lose your ministry. You're going to, your, your friends are, you're going to lose some friends probably through it. It feels like there's no end to the losses that are, that could happen as a result of the fallout. And so minimization, denial of certain aspects, you know, actual lying to make it not sound as bad as what it is. Mm -hmm. You have every incentive you know, from a human standpoint, it's almost every possible incentive not to speak about the affair for what it really was. And so that in inspires every possible defense. So sometimes that looks like a counterattack too. you know, it's, and these are some of the real tragedies that, you know, you get sometimes people who you know, act as though their spouse checking in on them or snooping on them and then catching them in an affair. They act as though that snooping was worse than the affair itself. And uh, that's something Shirley Glass, who's an authority in the field mentions as well, that, you know, there's, you sometimes see anger, a protective anger that can be really ugly. In the in the betrayed spouse, I think there's defense too, because to be betrayed in that way, to be cheated on, it's very hard not to interpret that as a deficiency in you. It's, it's not the case. There's nothing that could be true about a marriage, no matter how hard the marriage is, that merits adultery, but it feels true. And so there are threatening ideas about yourself that you're, you're coming to. And so there's that defensiveness inspired there that you, you want to appeal to your record as a good spouse or berate yourself and minutely zero in on all the problems that you've caused and then take blame because if it's your fault, at least you can fix it. Those are all somewhat of a defensive posture that protects you from feeling the weight of what it probably would be appropriate to feel. There are so many more and there are revenge affairs, alcohol, there, there's a lot of really tough stuff that can come after being cheated on. It, it can also come after the pain of having to disclose being the one who strayed. So, so endless ways that we can try to protect ourselves from things that we're terrified of. 
Building on that, you observe that the starting point of an affair is typically some sort of pain. So while every couple will be different, in general, what kinds of pains have you noticed in these situations? Really common ones are major illness or loss of a child, loss of a job, or a really major complication at work. Uh, there's also just the slow accumulation of hurt within the marriage. Sometimes uh, the hurt there is a more self-centered hurt, so not feeling aggrandized or built up or served or feeling like you deserve more in the marriage. I'd call that an entitlement pattern. The secular world calls this like a narcissistic wound. You hurt that you're getting feedback or you hurt that you're not being built up in, in, in ways that really aren't appropriate. And so that, that is the case sometimes, but it is experienced as pain still. Not everyone will fit into that entitlement pattern, though, although there will be elements of entitlement. Uh, there's also, I think, a desperation pattern where there's so much pain that it feels like an affair relationship is just a must-have to get through life. Of course, that's not true, but again, the experience of desperation across the board in a marriage can lead to those kinds of pains that then become an occasion or a, a, a part of the temptation. You mentioned in uh, just a few moments ago about blame, and I wondered what is the danger of playing the blame game as we examine these various pains in the restoration process? Blame is going to make everything worse. It's really just not, it's not the time to talk about the systemic problems in the marriage. So, you know, the common ones are my husband had been there for me emotionally, relationally, I wouldn't have sought it elsewhere or vice versa. You know, common one is if, you know, my wife had been there sexually for me, then I wouldn't have had to go elsewhere. And that's, of course, not true. It's not the case. The systemic elements are relevant, and they're relevant temptations, they're relevant challenges, they're trials, they're suffering. But again, there's nothing that merits cheating. There's nothing. There's no pain that you look at and say, this, this would merit cheating. So blame essentially derails the process. So to blame your spouse for the affair, instead of taking that time talking uh, where there's still hope of reconciliation, instead of taking that time to uh, appreciate the gravity of what's done, what's been done, to speak sensitively about the impact of what's happened. It's a diversion to say, instead of talking about what I've done to destroy our marriage, let's talk about what you've contributed before that. Hmm. And so it's really a diversion. It's a changing of the conversation in an unloving direction, taking away from the work that needs to be done. Ultimately, two big stages. You, you, number one, you have to heal the breach of the affair, and then you have to work on the systemic dynamics. But if you try to address all the systemic dynamics first, all the things that were tough in the marriage, then it's really hard to not convey that, well, it's kind of your fault too, right? Mm -hmm. And we never want to get in a place where we say our sins are someone else's fault, even though we want to always say that suffering is relevant. That makes a lot of sense. Well, in the book, you write that one of the keys to starting the reconciliation process well is to prepare oneself for a long, complicated road ahead. And you warn the cheating spouse about the temptation to become impatient with the process. You say that they might ask, quote, why is my spouse not forgiving me yet? Why don't people see me as repentant yet? Why am I not back at home yet? Can't we put this stuff behind us and move on? And why isn't the reconciliation as easy as flipping a few switches or shaking the etch-a-sketch clear as if nothing happened? There are a lot of reasons it's not an easy step forward, but I think a lot of us expect deliverance from sin to be kind of a Damascus Road experience, you know, Paul being knocked off his horse and going a completely different direction. Uh, we tend to forget about, you know, the three years in Arabia and all the other preparation and the growth needed to make a full change of direction. And if I could put it as simple as possible, having an affair requires not thinking about other people's feelings for a long time. Uh, you have to get good at being somewhat self-oriented 
And so it's it's a self-oriented response to be impatient with your spouse's pain, uh, with the offended spouse's pain. It usually means you know that the offending spouse is not thinking much about their spouse's pain or hasn't attended to it enough when they ask questions like what, what, what you summarized there. So the offending spouse will typically deny this and say, you know, oh, believe me, I know all the pain I've caused. But early on in the process, it's almost never the case. Uh, we almost never have an accurate view of how we've harmed another person that quick. Uh, and, I, and again, I think it's mostly because the prerequisites for crossing the lines of infidelity are trying not to think about how this will affect other people. And so you just have to, you have to practice that for a while. And so then when you come clean, you're still kind of in the habit of not really thinking about other people's feelings. Mm. That is the source of those kinds of questions. Well, based on what I've read, it sounds like there's a temptation for the confessing spouse to actually withhold information or details about the adultery in effort to shield their spouse from additional pain that would be inflicted by really hearing the full disclosure. So what are the dangers of delaying confessions during the restoration process? This is one of the more challenging lies to unwind mm-hmm. and um because almost everyone who's hiding uh, sexual sin is going to feel like they're protecting their spouse from painful information, which in a certain sense, yes, choosing tonight to disclose or not disclose will decide in, in a certain sense whether your spouse is going to be angry with you tonight or not, or brokenhearted tonight or not. It allows the person to recast themselves as a protector and as someone who's really actually thinking of your spouse Whereas, you know, if you bring it out in the light of day for five seconds, the spouse is never going to say thank you for withholding this information. I, I'm so glad you protected me. They're never going to feel that way. And so it's, it's kind of one of those ways that when you have hidden sin, it kind of distorts perspective. And the danger is that when the details come out in this torturous manner, which is, again, how Shirley Glass describes it, you know, that most confessions unfold in a torturous manner, mm. the, the, uh, the danger is that it's going to pull the rug out from under the betrayed spouse as soon as they start to feel settled. Mm. If you kind of say, okay, I'll share a little bit, and then once we deal with that, I'll share more. You think, you know, the idea is that, oh, it'll it'll be easier if they take it, if the person hears it in doses. But it's it's always worse because you accept that information is painful, you start to deal with it, you start to heal, and they say, actually, no, we need to go back and do more surgery and open you back up again. It's really not true that it's going to be easier for the betrayed spouse because essentially, betrayed spouse is going to feel lied to again. And so a conversation that's supposed to be the start of rebuilding trust actually breaks the trust down further when you don't come clean more or less at the same time, if you don't let the basic truth come out quickly. Let's talk about some of the real conversational exchanges that might take place between couples in this situation. You write in the book that, quote, in this season, your urge to clarify will be overwhelming. We compulsively defend ourselves, but it is vital that you release control of the narrative and put the interest of your spouse first. What does it mean to release control of the narrative and how might it look in the context of a dialogue between spouses? Well, the way the first part of it sounds is, you know, you were just waiting for me to leave town for my trip, waiting for me to let my guard down, and then you betray me. How come I didn't see it earlier, right? So you could see the betrayed spouse mm-hmm. really upset and, and you know, just grasping for some sense of explanation for, like, how could I be tricked so severely? And then so it's kind of – you could imagine it being like a sloppy uh, – a, a bit of a sloppy presentation of the details, as in you get some of the details wrong, which mm-hmm. – um, Wrong is maybe too strong a way to put it. You, you, they're presented in a light that's really negative because it is really negative. And the truth is often more complex. You know, there's self-deception in the offending spouse where it's, no, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to really sleep with this person. I really didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it going that direction. Or 
that's not how that particular weekend went. And sometimes it's darker than that. You know, this, the, the straying spouse attacks the betrayed spouse for how they talk about the affair, you know, mm -hmm. like here she is again, or here he is again, or here she is again, criticizing me. You know, I never do anything right. And I always want to make a mountain out of a molehill. And, mm -hmm. and so it's, sometimes it's really ugly. Sometimes it's more just the details are wrong and it's very uncomfortable to hear yourself talked about imperfectly, mm -hmm. especially when it's sin. And most people who've fallen in in what you might call like an embarrassing way or a way that they feel a lot of shame about in their heads they've been able to say there's a line that I really shouldn't cross and I'll make sure I don't cross the line that really matters and so they want to make sure to emphasize that they didn't cross this other line that really matters you know and to clarify that they only crossed certain lines just so far and not an inch farther the truth is that some of the details do matter and, and some of the, I mean, the basic facts of the, the situation matter, but sometimes you have the option of either being right or being loving. And uh, if you fight really hard to get it said just the right way, every time you're going to totally exasperate your spouse. Um, you're going to, it, basically, you're, you're going to make them feel controlled and that they can't explain anything about their pain because they're going to say it wrong. And it, you just create a situation where um, none of the healing that you're wanting to do is happening. So that's, those, those are the bad conversations. That's how it looks when it's going bad. Uh, when it's going well, it, you know, it starts to sound like you know, perhaps the betrayed spouse is, you know, is getting upset, maybe visibly angry. And the, the, the spouse who strayed says you know, in, in his or her head, you know, this means that my, my wife or my husband is really upset. This means that she's really hurting. And I'm not going to fight over the details right now, but I'm going to say, you know, you're, you're right. I, I hurt you so deeply. And it's going to be more of a basic statement of impact rather than adjudicating the details or fighting for a, a detail that one writer says the straying spouse will really want to fight over all the subtleties and little lies of omission versus commission and just the, the moral parsing of everything that was done. But uh, one writer says that I think really well, you know, the betrayed spouse rarely appreciates the subtleties. A bit farther down the road, when the initial shock of the confession has passed and the couple is making an effort to reconcile, what are some of the qualities and habits that need to be pursued in order to demonstrate that real heart change is slowly but surely taking place? In terms of the one who has strayed, certainly there's a massive heart change, massive perspective change. When that change occurs, what it starts to look like is the tone of the conversation changes. Uh, the person starts to evidence a quietness of spirit, a humility, and not not a striving to protect reputation, but really a freedom that, you know, as Paul seems to be grieved always that he was this chief of sinners who persecuted Christians, but he doesn't seem to be wanting to protect that information. He brings it up for the good of others occasionally or to to comment on his own journey uh, and his own testimony. And I think the willingness not to protect and fend off potential accusation, uh, but just a, an openness, a quietness of spirit, a gentleness again, these things really characterize a person who's changing. I mean, that does a tremendous amount of good in the relationship to be able to speak sensitively about, you know, I've been reading about and understanding and learning about uh, what affairs in general do to a family. And I just was thinking that I probably affected you and the kids in this way or that way. And am, am I getting closer to seeing what I've put you through? And, and conversations like that, not happening once, but happening with some frequency uh, so that the, the betrayed spouse feels more and more over time understood. That is what it really starts to sound like when you see change happening. 
So what do you see as the biggest obstacle for couples working on reconciliation after an affair? So for couples who want to reconcile and are putting the effort in to try to reconcile, there are, there are multiple things that are hard to come back from. And it's surprisingly, it's not usually, I mean, for some people find this surprising, that it's not usually what happens sexually that is hardest to get over for a betrayed spouse. The hardest is typically the deception because that just makes it feel like your whole world is unreliable and the person you trusted most is now unreliable and it's not trustworthy. And so it just makes it feel like yeah, you don't know what's up and down. You don't, you don't know a way forward. You don't know how you're going to rebuild when you feel like you can't, you don't have basic trust. You, you don't have the basic confidence that the person is dealing with you in good faith mm. and telling you the truth. It's not easy to be not trusted. You know, most people don't enjoy feeling like others are skeptical about what they're saying, expressing, feeling. I think the probably the bigger obstacle than tr rebuilding trust is unrepentance. And that may be too vague, but basically if a spouse has had an affair and appears to be on the attack and very defensive and you know acting as though they are the wounded party, that is a person who's not fundamentally changing yet. And I don't know that it's wise to reconcile apart from repentance. Uh, I don't I know God does not reconcile with people apart from repentance uh, and faith in him. And I think that it is a major barrier to getting back together if there's unrepentance. That's obvious when the person is still with the affair partner, but it's perhaps less obvious when the person has ended the affair and yet is in all the other ways not yet choosing to walk the way of life. At what point in the process are you guiding the offending spouse into a realization that, look, you know, first and foremost, yes, you have devastated your spouse with this choice, but first and foremost, the offense is against God. How do you handle bringing people to that realization? I find that that requires a lot of creativity because mm -hmm. I've worked in Christian counseling settings primarily. And so when, when people come in the door, rather than trying to pretend that they haven't sinned against God, they inform me that they've done everything necessary to restore things with God or that they are planning to or that they have got that part taken care of. And then they want help with the relational part. So it's actually a really hard sell to, to in any way to try to explain that there are more things that need to happen spiritually. And I don't, don't mean that to be unduly harsh or blunt, but that is my experience is that there is a basic sense that now that I have admitted it, you know, I am, I'm fully accepted by God, which is, I don't, I don't doubt that necessarily. But what I mean is that there are more subtle ways that we resist God's healing work in our lives. And there are lots of ways that we can perhaps externally make a show of being spiritually in the right place, and maybe even believing we're spiritually in the right place uh, and saying, you know, for example, I'm having devotions now. I never was before. I'm listening to sermons in the car. I'm going to church again. Who are you to ever say that my heart's not in the right place? You know, are you God? Do you know, do you know my heart? So that there's sometimes is an aggressive defensiveness that when that comes up, you're, you, my thought is usually that there's not really a softness under the surface. And I say that because I'm not temperamentally a very harsh person. <laughs> um, you know, if, if anything, I, I probably err on the other side. Uh, and so if someone really comes after me, I generally have this sense that it's not probably that I've been too harsh, but rather that they're not actually ready to do the work in their hearts. They're still hiding. And it just makes me think of Second Corinthians seven ten talking about the difference between godly sorrow, which brings repentance, and then worldly sorrow, which results in worldly grief, spiritual death. And so I just I was curious to know what that type of conversation looks like. There's gotta be, I would imagine, something at the level of desires and beliefs 
that even mm -hmm. cultivate and foster develop that environment where satisfaction pleasure joy is pursued elsewhere apart from mm -hmm. god and apart from the spouse would you agree with right. that right i think so one way of talking about it is refuge and false refuge and true refuge and and this is where I do I do feel a lot of compassion for people who, in a spirit of desperation, uh, you know, ha have reached out and fallen, or have leaned on someone who they thought they could trust, or coworker, a someone at church, a family friend, you know, basically felt in great pain, in great grief, you know, again, for example, a very serious illness in the family, a child who's chronically ill, uh, just these major life trials, and we feel you know, in the very much in the dark valley, and there's this sense of absolute desperation, and you're reaching out to cling on, just cling on to just anything that'll get you through this. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when, it's, when it doesn't look like a bottle of alcohol, when it looks like a friend, it's harder to see an affair coming. And a friend is a precious thing. It's a smaller refuge that when it's handled right, points you to the greater refuge of God himself. But then sometimes the smaller refuges can become a, an ultimate refuge in themselves. And that's when you know, you start hiding and protecting that relationship that really shouldn't have gone much past a polite, encouraging work and work relationship where, you know, perhaps between believers, you might express that you're praying for you and your husband and praying for you and your wife. You know, um, my family and I are concerned for you all. I'm so sorry to hear you're going through this, but, but you're not becoming the confidant. Essentially, to start to see God as refuge is vital after the affair. Finding it difficult to find God as refuge it, prior to the affair is part of what led to it, is that, is that life is very, very hard, and we look for places that are safe and nurturing. And there are times when, uh, for various reasons, God does not feel close. You know, this, this is where, again, this is where I, I do feel compassion that it can be a slow and winding path uh, away from the path of life. And um, any of us are, are vulnerable to this. And, and so it's, um, like I said, it inspires compassion, should lead us to, a, to an attitude of grace. Well, I even love how the scriptures remind us is God's compassion toward us that leads us to repentance. So even right. in these what seem like catastrophic failures, you know, and maybe not just in the context of marriage, but just in life in general, uh, you know, this remembering that God has compassion, even in our poor choices and rebellion to love us and to be faithful, even when we are faithless and right. to beckon us back and say, come home, well, let's work on this together. So thank you for building on that point. I think it is really important. I really appreciated in your chapter in the devotional entitled Avoiding the Downward Spiral, where you address the overwhelming sorrows that can come after confessing an affair. And you warn that, quote, those walking the faithful path after sexual sin are in danger of crippling discouragement. There were two main cautions you mentioned on this day's devotion, and I just wondered if you would spend a few minutes talking about them, because I think they're super helpful. You point out that some heavy emotions will be normal in this season, and that people should aim for an extremely difficult middle way. So can you kind of unpack that and share the two things that the offending spouse needs to avoid while navigating the restoration process? The two dangers to avoid as you're pursuing that middle way, you know, number one, avoiding turning conversations of other people's pain into conversations about my own pain, and the, the second being avoiding tactics of escaping heavy feelings uh, yourself. And it is really hard to pull this off, because often when you're talking to 
uh, your spouse or kids about the way that you know, your infidelity has impacted them. You know, you hear their pain, you hear their anger and frustration, and it's just never pleasant to look in the mirror and see difficult things. It's never pleasant to listen to someone else talking about how much you've hurt them. And because it paints you as a person who you don't want to be. It, it makes you look like a person who does these types of things. It makes you look like a person who causes pain, and that's very, very unpleasant. And so it brings up discouragement, sadness, fear, frustration, sometimes defensiveness, all these things. And so it's easy to then turn the conversation around into, you know, I'm so sorry I've hurt you in this way, and then kind of delving into your own pain rather than attending to the other person's pain. The other version of that or the other danger to avoid is is the escaping heavy feelings in various ways, which is, you know, obviously the, any vice like you know, pornography, alcohol, there are lots and lots, or just overwork, workaholism, there, there are lots of ways to escape heavy feelings, kind of staying in a surface, not discussing emotions. And some of this, it's, it's easy to fall into because the reality is, like, who in the world wants to hear that you still miss the person you had an affair with? Who's going to help you with those feelings? No one's going to want to hear that and because it's, it's offensive and spouse certainly doesn't want to hear it. So rather than escaping the heavy feelings, we want to find people who you can grieve with. That doesn't need to be 20 people. It needs to be some people who can be there and, and talk through the pains and, and help you walk through them, make it to the other side. A couple of things to keep in mind. One is that when you've been highly self-oriented for a long time, you're very fragile uh, about when people talk about you or tell you that they're hurt by you. And so there's a fragility that God willing will not be there forever. You will not always bruise quite this easily. But early on, the waves of emotion should be expected. But I do believe that this is what Paul talks about almost directly in Second Corinthians when he encourages the people who are receiving back the adulterer, he encourages them, watch out, make sure that you affirm your love for this person, because otherwise he's in danger of being overwhelmed by overmuch sorrow. And that's what I mean by crippling discouragement, is that as the church, caring for people, someone like this, someone who struggled in this way, it's possible to be so upset with them, it's possible to be, to be so exasperated by the selfishness you still see, that we overwhelm with overmuch sorrow and cripple them in discouragement rather than providing the words of hope. You know, as, as you said, included, you know, the, the worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow and leading to repentance and, and to hope. And um, these, are, these are things we want to cultivate and encourage. And, and the person is in danger of the opposite, which is the discouragement. Well, speaking of community, there may be an element of shame or secrecy when it comes to adultery. And the couple might be really apprehensive about bringing that transgression to light in the context of their local church. So would you help us understand why it is important to work through this heartbreaking season with the help of wise biblical counselors or pastors or really just the body of Christ in general? Right. Well, maybe I can validate the shame and secrecy first a little bit, just because the reality is people, some people have learned that others don't take these kinds of things well. And so they're not crazy to not want to share them. I don't think that's the ultimate answer, but we should be honest that some people have heard essentially that it was your fault that you were cheated on or you know, that, that there's a blaming of the victim sometimes. If you go through one of those, much less several of them, it's very hard to want to open up to anyone else. Mm -hmm. A lot of people anticipate rightly that there are some people who will handle, be able to handle this better than others and some people that sh perhaps will not be, should not be entrusted with this information. What I have seen often, though, is that there is kind of a destructive silence surrounding these things so that, that families suffer alone. And that's true of shame across the board. Shame always pulls people out of community and is probably the most effective lie of shame that you're supposed to keep people out, that it's too embarrassing, that it's too big. 
that no one will handle it well. But the reality is, is it kind of works the opposite way is when you entrust your sense of shame with a safe person, you generally see some of that cloud start to lift, you know, when the person responds with grace. But the connection is vital, I mean, to, to the church, to helpers. And I do think counselors, biblical counselors could be, could be a huge, a huge help in this. It's hard even just logistically to have someone often in your, someone in your church who can provide as, as much regular focused time, although do you know some churches seem to be able to do this quite effectively. But the, this connection is vital because you know privacy is what got it you into trouble in the first place if you're the person who strayed. And so connection is going to be a big part of the restoration process. The reality is that there are the few things more effective than proactive confession, loving community against sexual sin and temptation. That, and that's certainly true for the person who strayed, but for the person who is betrayed, you know, it, it is very hard to suffer alone. And to have someone who can be with you in your pain and in a small way, be a little bit like who the Good Shepherd is in being with you in the dark valley, not being able to get you out of the dark valley. You know, a person does not have miraculous powers to airlift you out of the dark valley, but the presence, their presence with you in it can make the difference between a day feeling tolerable and a day feeling that you absolutely can't go on. We have time for one more question, so I want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help Project to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who has experienced the devastation of an extramarital affair. Whether they are the adulterer or the victimized spouse, they are feeling hopeless for reconciliation. They're hurt, angry, and scared that their world is unraveling right before their eyes. So what would you say to that person to give them the courage they need to believe that God can heal and restore what sin has torn apart? To the person who's fallen into adultery, I would say your work is worth it. The pain and discomfort of sitting with what feel like unfixable problems, that there is something on the other end that is worth fighting for, that especially when there's there's hope of restoring your relationship, hope of restoring a marriage, relationship with your kids. That is a precious thing. All the efforts and all the headaches, all the hard feelings uh, are worth it. You know, this, this kind of work to try to come home to a spouse and kids, that's analogous to the work that we're doing to try to come home to the Lord himself. I would want you to hear that he welcomes you back and that although this feels like the end of the journey, this is really the beginning. To the person who's betrayed, I'd like to say you need to give yourself permission and space to grieve. Give yourself permission to take some time in a day to think about it. Give yourself the permission to not think about it sometimes during the day. You need to find safe people to talk with. You need to give yourself a little bit of a break from fixing at, fixing everything, from figuring it all out. I would encourage you to not let anyone rush you to a decision, to take the time to decide what's next, to take your time in thinking through biblical grounds, and you need space to see if change is happening. You need to not do it for the other person, but give them a chance to demonstrate that they want to change. You need comfort. You need hope. You need encouragement. And so be willing to receive it. Find the people who are able to provide it for you. And my hope is that you'd see it in God himself, most of all. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for all of your insights and wisdom and those words of encouragement. It was just really helpful to me to hear how you navigate through these really, really, really difficult issues with couples who are just hurting and need the hope and help of the gospel. If there is someone listening to this show and they want to get connected with you and your ministry, where would you recommend they go to find more information about your resources online? The way to find articles, seminars, things like that would be ccef.org, where I've written some articles for the Journal of Biblical Counseling and, and, and spoken at their conference. 
if you're a counselor and looking for a consultation or want to know about, more about the ministry that I, I lead, it's called Blue Ridge Christian Counseling, and you can find it at brccva.org. Awesome, Michael. I will be sure to link to those places in the show notes. So if you are listening and you're interested, you can scroll down to the link in the show notes. That will take you directly to the page where you can access information about Michael's resources, but also about this devotional from PNR Publishing. I, I recommend it highly uh, as a tool for a counselor to use or as a couple trying to walk through uh, the restoration process. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today about this topic. I hope that it was a blessing to the listeners. And I know just personally, I really appreciate the work that you're doing in this area to help reconcile people to God, but also back to each other. It's just really encouraging to to learn about it. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.